Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question, while providing real solutions from a biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Charles Roberts and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Hello, and welcome to another podcast of the Out of the Question podcast. My name is Charles Roberts, and I'm a pastor, and I'm joined by my co-host, Andrea Schwartz. Well, today we want to take up an issue, uh, the subject of, are protests the best way to handle policy disagreements? We might say, are protests the best way to handle that and any number of things? But behind that question is a deeper issue of how do we really affect change? If that's the goal of a protest, to affect change, whether it's spoken or unspoken, I, I can't imagine a protest where it wasn't, <laughs> where it wasn't spoken or obvious. That really raises the question of what is change all about and how do we go about doing it. Andrew, would you like to start us off with some thoughts uh, in this area? Certainly. I think part and parcel of the whole idea of protests has a lot to do with an audience. Yes. I don't think people protest unless they think they have an audience. And in today's day and age, the protesters are really concerned with what the media says about their protest. So if you remember back to the inauguration, there was a big dispute as to how many people were at the inauguration. And the president said the numbers were greatly reduced and somebody else came back with something else. And the same thing happens every year at the pro-life marches in Washington or the marches or protests against guns, whatever it is, the deciding factor seems to be how many people we can get out. And so to me, that sort of reeks of this whole idea that the democracy, all we have to do is get 51% and therefore our ideas are correct and we're going to make a difference. And so that's how I look at protests, something that wouldn't happen if the cameras weren't rolling, if the microphones weren't going, if there wasn't somebody you were trying to impress with this saying no to something. Well, that was going to be my first point, Andrea. <laughs> I stole your point. <laughs> yeah, our listeners should know that we don't collude or uh, compare notes before we start. These are largely spontaneous discussions, but that was certainly the first thing in my mind. The idea of protest movements or protesting gatherings are largely a modern phenomenon, and without the cameras rolling or wide audience appeal or impact, most of these sorts of things would not be done. It's not to say that it's not important to reach a large audience with whatever your concern is. The idea is to try to change people's consciousness, change their view of reality based on massive numbers and this sort of thing. So the question that we're trying to understand behind that is, what is the best way to affect change? And this is a timely topic not, because it just so happens that not only are we discussing this now for a variety of reasons, but I'm sure many of our listeners at this point in which this recording is taking place will be aware of a recent uh, protest that took place at a Starbucks in Philadelphia over the issue relating to what was perceived to be racism. And so, once again, the idea was to get a bunch of people out and, without, again, without the cameras and the newspapers and the Internet recordings and that sort of thing, I doubt very much that there would have been much interest in doing that. But people nowadays, for just about any cause, but let's think of one of the great protests in history. I've been thinking about this. Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, 
certainly made a protest. You know, he nailed the 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral, and then he went before the church tribunal of the bishops and stood his ground on Holy Scripture. So is that an example of a kind of protest that's okay? Is he affecting change? I I have some thoughts about that, Andrea. Do you want to comment on, on, on Luther's protest? I'll save the Luther comment for you. What I was going to say was that in looking at biblical history, were there protests? Were there mass numbers of people who were getting together and trying to get people to do one thing or another? Well, you know, there was a mass number of people around the walls of Jericho, but they weren't trying to impress the people of Jericho. There were protests with the three friends of Daniel who weren't going to bow down, and their protest was saying no. Of course, when the Jews were going to be killed by Haman, having a protest wouldn't have meant much. It actually took an edict from the king to say, well, I can't stop this, but you can fight back. True protesting, saying something is wrong, I I disagree, has much more to do with real action than it does with a lot of noise. And staying with the biblical example, I'll come back to Luther in just a moment, but when Peter and the early apostles were admonished by the Roman authorities and by the Jewish authorities, you know, don't be speaking in the name of this Jesus. Well, they basically said, sorry, we're not going to do that. We can't but help speak in this name. These these stories and accounts are recorded in the first chapters of the book of Acts. Now, what did they do? Did they go back and motivate and organize all of the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem and the outlying areas and say, we're going to march on Jerusalem? No, what they did was they simply went back and continued to teach and preach in the name of Jesus. Yeah, but Charles, a lot of them died. So what's the safe way to say I disagree and not have anything bad happen to you? Well, depending on the circumstances, I don't know that there is a quote-unquote safe way. I was being sarcastic. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. It didn't come through across the, okay. the World Wide Web from California. Yeah, but the, the point being is the apostles, for three friends of Daniel, these are people who had conviction, and they acted on their conviction. They didn't wait to get a whole lot of people around to agree with them. I think it's R.J. Rushdoony's famous quote, what affects change are not majorities, but dedicated minorities. And it isn't because the dedicated minorities organize really well. These dedicated minorities stand for what they believe in. That will bring us back around to Luther. He was standing for what he believed in, which was the authority of the Word of God and justification by faith alone. But the point that I want to make about Luther, and this is a larger point about how do we affect change, is that prior to Luther having his public protest, and it was not a protest in the sense in which we've been talking about it, where he massed large numbers of, of uh, his German followers to march on the cathedral. It was a personal stand, and it was motivated by the fact that he himself, his own inner life had been transformed by his understanding of the true meaning of the gospel and what it means to be justified by faith alone. So that, I think, using him as an example, as the biblical example, is that we affect change by seeing change take place first in ourselves, by having our lives transformed by the renewing power of God's Holy Spirit and becoming followers of Jesus, and as Paul admonishes us, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's where change starts. Now, that language technically means be transformed by changing the way you think, by following after this new way of Jesus, which you can't effectively do without the power of the Holy Spirit to change your mind and heart to do that. 
But that's the genesis of any kind of larger affecting of change, whether we call it protest or not. To put it another way, self-government. We govern ourselves according to God's word, and then we seek to impact other areas of society and culture. And I think the whole modern protest movement actually has a lot of its roots in revolutionary movements. And if there's anything that's true, it's that revolution, even though it means change, changes things, but it doesn't necessarily change things for the better. And it's not like it's a programmable change that you will know exactly the effect of this whole enterprise will be on how people will react to it. Because if you don't factor in the sinful nature of man and the fact that he's hopelessly depraved apart from Christ, then any change, it might be a change, but it isn't necessarily a change for the better. That's why from a Christian biblical perspective, our emphasis needs to be on regeneration, not on revolution. Yeah, regeneration slash reformation, not revolution. And in keeping, I don't know why I'm on a, a Luther kick today, but in keeping with that metaphor, it's unfortunate that many of his followers in Europe didn't quite understand the nature of what motivated him because what we know, and, and this is somewhat of a caricature, but it, it's generally accurate. What we know is that those countries in Europe that signed on, so to speak, with the Lutheran, Luther-based Reformation, they were largely top-down movements. You know, the king or the prince would become a follower of Luther, usually motivated by some reason other than theology or religious conviction. And so then everybody else in the realm or the kingdom, okay, we're Lutherans now, we're no longer Roman Catholic. And by contrast, the, the, those cultures and societies that were heavily influenced by Calvin and the Reformed understanding were bottom-up movements. People understood that the transformation takes place within the individual human heart and in his family, and then it radiates out into these other areas of culture. As you rightly said, the idea of some sort of massive revolutionary-type activity, because it is not motivated by self-government or by transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's rather a mass mind-control type of event, it doesn't affect any lasting change, and generally the change it does affect is um, very bad in most cases. And I think it goes back to the whole idea of who's the audience. I think rarely, whether it's organized boycotts or protests where people are all going to show up at a place and quote-unquote have their voices heard, I don't think they're paying enough attention to the only audience that really matters. Of course, that would be the triune God. That is absolutely correct. In light of that, then, if we have this understanding that our motivation for change, how we really affect change, where do we start with that? I've hinted at it, but let's take an example, perhaps, of human abortion. Now, this has been a topic of social and political action among Christians of various stripes for many, many decades, and we've certainly seen protests and marches on Washington and things like that, and yet we still have abortion on demand in every state in, in these United States. Let me throw this back to you, Andrew. Do you have any thoughts about how what we're talking about, say, would apply in that specific case or what might need to be done that's been not been done? Well, I think it's getting back to fundamental principles. Here's an example. Recently, there was a national protest against guns after the episode that happened in Florida. Right. And there was going to be a, a walkout at a particular time of day on a particular day. And a lot of the schools supported it. Well, in 
my deck of the woods, a young man said, well, you know what? I think we should have a national day where students who protest abortion have the same luxury of going out and making their voices heard. Well, as one might expect, it didn't get the same glowing response of the administration because yeah. it's, the response, I think, to him was, this isn't something that affects students the way guns affect students. So I don't really know what happened with that. But so how do you win there? Well, first of all, I appreciate the young man's effort. But if you're a Christian, what are you doing in a public school that's doing everything it can to make sure that your religious beliefs are not being recognized or heard or even given any sort of validation? The good old state of California now has a bill in process to get to the floor where they're going to make it illegal to publish or buy any book that speaks against things like homosexuality and transgenderism. Well, it won't take too long for people to figure out that that means that the Bible can't be read or sold. Now, we've already gotten rid of it in the courts. We've already gotten rid of it in the schools. Now we're going to get rid of it in the bookstores, in the libraries, and then eventually the churches. So how do we protest this? Well, first and foremost, you ignore it the same way the apostles ignored it and said, I'm sorry, we must serve God rather than man. But I don't think there's too many Christians who really are prepared for what that might mean for them. You point out an important issue, and that is the starting point, or the first error or mistake that's been made in that particular instance is the fact that this individual is part of, a, of an environment where his worldview is going to be marginalized, and he really has not much of an audience to whom to appeal in that sense, or that, or that or a, a situation where his message would be severely restricted. And that goes back to the same point that we must begin to effect change with our individual lives. If we are not transformed by the power of God's Spirit to the point where we already understand, our first problem is we don't want to go to these propaganda mills and mind control institutions that pretend to teach us something, but the whole thing is to make us good slaves of the state. If we haven't gotten to that point first, then the rest of it is not going to fall into place properly. And so whether it be the issue of education, the issue of money and economics, in any of these areas, we've got to be running on full on all of them according to God's law and God's word, or we're going to listen to the swan song of humanism and start perpetuating those ways and those efforts. I think one of the problems specifically with the issue of human abortion is the fact that we've largely taken this idea that we do have to affect mass change. We have to start with the federal government and change a federal law rather than working on a more local individuals and state basis. So it's been the mentality if abortion is allowed anywhere, or if we can't stop it everywhere, then we just forget about it. There's no point in even trying to do anything. And um, I think that's a, a poor understanding about uh, the way we should approach that kind of issue. And I don't want to disparage people who have spent effort, time, and money getting to protest, whether it's on a local or a national level, whether they show up at a Planned Parenthood or another abortion clinic. It's not so much that I want to disparage these people and say, well, they must not really mean what they say. I just think they've lost sight of the fact that abortion 
is a symptom of a greater malaise. And that the fact that we have legalized abortion, the fact that we have legalized homosexuality and that you can't speak against it in some arenas and you'll be labeled as having hate speech, this is God's judgment on our culture. You see, if in fact the church, and I don't mean individual buildings, I mean the people of God, we're going to honestly live that we will obey God rather than man, rather than try to get along with people so that my life isn't inconvenienced. There's no way that when you look at all the people who profess Christ, if they stood for what they said they believed, you would see the backing down of those in opposition because they would recognize they don't have anything other than force or coercion. See, the idea of transgenderism and homosexuality and abortion must not actually carry the day. Otherwise, it wouldn't have to be enforced on people. And so we come back then to that central point. What is it that's going to properly ground us in affecting change on issues like uh, abortion or uh, the proper view of human sexuality? And the fact is that unless we have a starting point that gives us a framework by which we can govern ourselves, our families, we're going to continue to feed into a humanistic understanding about how to deal with this. What we want to get to and where we have to dial back and start over perhaps is the abortion mills would be out of business if no one was showing up to have an abortion or or whatever the, the particular social problem is. As long as people have an understanding about the nature of life the meaning of human life and its its purpose, etc., that is not grounded squarely in Scripture, then they're going to start compromising on those areas until we do something other than sort of the mass action approach and dial back and focus on individual action. I don't think we're going to see any lasting change. And I'll just throw my voice in, too. I certainly don't doubt whatever that, say, you've had 150 people protesting out in front of a Planned Parenthood abortion clinic. And maybe there's one girl or woman who was going there to have an abortion whose mind was changed. Praise God for that. That, that That's fine, and that's all well and good. But we're, we're trying to address the issue about protests and mass action versus that which can affect proper and real change to the point where we would see our current society completely reversed and turned on its head to where, rather than a humanistic, atheistic culture and model, we would be finding a biblical model. How can we get to that? We had some semblance of it prior to the advent of the modern humanistic worldview, even though it wasn't perfect. But what we're talking about and what we want to try to get to is a genuinely biblically grounded society and culture that manifests God's truth in all of these areas, but it has to start with the individual, with the individual person and their families. Right, so let's get back to talking about regeneration. The issue with abortion is that people have murder in their heart. Anyone who is walking into an abortion clinic, either to have an abortion herself or helping the person get an abortion who happens to be pregnant, there's murder in their heart. Now, that's not a popular thing to say because we want to say the bad guy in this is the abortionist, and he for sure is the bad guy. But if we don't acknowledge sin and we don't acknowledge the fact that to go ahead and pay somebody some money, for whatever reason you say, I'll have to leave school, I don't have enough money to support the rest of my children, 
if we don't acknowledge that as a murderous intent in their heart, then there's no way that that person's going to change. And it's not being nasty. Well, it's not really nice to tell a woman who's already upset that she has murder in her heart. Doesn't she have murder in her heart? Uh, unfortunately, yes. And that raises the question then, how do we change that? How has that changed? And as you mentioned the term regeneration, this is the transformation of the individual mind and heart. Now, that doesn't mean that somebody, say, who already has a clear understanding of God's law has been reborn and transformed by the power of God's Holy Spirit, that they themselves might not find their situation to be such that they have to face a decision like that. We are not perfect. We sin. And so anything like that is plausible and possible. So I may be somebody who understands the Scripture, and I have grown up being taught the Scripture by my parents, and now I'm faced with the choice to fornicate or not. I'm faced with the choice to have an abortion or not. This discussion really has little to do with that person's eternal destination and more to do with, are they being found faithful to what God commands? And so rather than say, you can never be a Christian and have an abortion, it's not my call, and I think it's off the point. You certainly can't be a faithful Christian and have an abortion. And this brings up an issue that has been a topic more than a few occasions in our discussions, and that is many people in the Christian world think of regeneration or, quote, being born again, unquote, as a purely inner spiritual thing that happens to a person and really doesn't radiate out into affecting behavior. That is, pietism is the technical term for it. And that has largely hamstrung and led to the situation that we have on this issue in particular. The idea that, okay, yes, I, I said that sinner's prayer. I've, quote, been regenerated. Excuse me while I get involved in this sin or, or that sin, uh, because I, I don't really sense any need or obligation to please God with my actions. Oh, oh, the only action I needed to please him at was I said yes to Jesus, and now everything else is sort of wide open. So good works don't save you, but you can't be saved without good works. And how we're going to find good works isn't based on what we think. It's going to be based on adherence to God's word, God's law. One of my favorite passages in Scripture, and I've probably already quoted it many times during these podcasts, is the end of Ecclesiastes, where it says, Hear the conclusion of the matter. If you want a summary of what it is we're supposed to do, fear God and keep his commandments, for that's the whole duty of man. Well, our Savior did that. Our Savior feared God and kept his commandments, and he fulfilled his duty. We cannot do any less. Let's go back to an earlier part of our discussion about the nature of uh, protests being public and being more or less geared toward a media type of event. One of the, the things that when, when people become very fixated on that issue, and it, it could be a, a Christian group or non-Christian group, when they realize that numbers are important. The idea then is, okay, maybe we've got 150 people who want to go do this. We need a lot more people in that. So people begin to be rounded up and paid, actually, money in some cases to go and quote-unquote protest, even though they may have little or no interest in the entire thing. I remember seeing a documentary recently about a, a religious cult that bought up a bunch of property uh, in Oregon, and they were facing some real problems with the local town government. And so they, what they were attempting to do was actually take over. It was a very small town, and they were attempting to take over this town government to affect change, to uh, pretty much agree with their particular Eastern religious convictions. 
And what they did is they sent buses all over the South, the West, the Midwest, and even as far as the back East here, rounding up homeless people on the pretense that they were going to give them a place to stay and a good square meal. But essentially what they were doing is they were bringing them back to this place to register them to vote so that they would be able to take over the town council. And, you know, the, the point of this is, is that you have these people who were involved in the quote-unquote protest who have absolutely no interest whatsoever in the real issue. Right. So, again, it's a numbers game, but it doesn't work unless you have someone who's counting your numbers. Exactly. I'm going to report them honestly one way or the other, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, what's the expression? God plus one other person is a majority. And we certainly have seen this in the history of the Christian church. Mar- Martin Luther was one man. The earliest apostles were only 12, and yet they fanned out across the Roman Empire and within a couple of centuries, which, you know, we can easily say that, but that's a long time. Several hundred years is a long time to wait for significant social change, and it was actually much longer than that in, in one sense, but yet the fruit of their labors paid off. This is another difference between affecting genuine change from a biblical perspective, the issue of reformation and regeneration versus revolution. You know, revolutionary movements and, and protests tend to be focused on instantaneous, very quick, cataclysmic change. But God's way is more progressive. It is over time development and progress to bring about the, the work of his kingdom. And you think about it, it's not that the apostles and the early church didn't witness the change of the Reformation because we believe our God is a God of the living and those who were born again in Christ are alive still. And so they're part of that great cloud of witnesses, but they didn't necessarily see it in their day. And that's part of the uh, the problem, I think, that we have faced in the Christian movement, especially as it relates to the transformation of our culture, the, the regeneration of our culture, is that we have not had that long-range vision that our forefathers had, as you have just mentioned. By contrast, those with the humanistic agenda, they certainly have, and they have been willing to, in a myriad number of places and ways, do whatever is necessary to gradually and over time dominate and take over institutions to where just in the space of yours and my lifetime, we see and hear things on television. We find laws on the books that were simply would have been unthinkable 50 years ago. And, now, and, and yet here they are. And so think in terms of health and wellness as opposed to disease and sickness. The first thing, if you have a problem, is you want to go to someone who, by listening to all the things you report, will have an understanding to give you a diagnosis. I think Martin Luther had 95 diagnoses that he attached to that door. He didn't necessarily have the solution, how it would work out, but first he identified the problem. And that's why I said, instead of trying to figure out ways to have boys and girls' bathrooms in public institutions or schools or how to get our voice heard at the flagpole in terms of abortion is wrong, that's not a good diagnosis. That's saying, oh, you have a pain, here's a Band-Aid. Let's just try to make it you feel better about your pain. The radical change that has to happen is for those who truly confess Jesus Christ and who claim salvation in Christ means that they have to rest everything on him. So let me give you a biblical example. Remember the story when Paul's in prison 
and there's an earthquake and the jailer thinks everybody has left. Yes. The jailer doesn't want to face his superiors. So his better solution is suicide. And Paul says, no, don't do that. Bad idea. We're all here. And so the jailer doesn't say, I dodged a bullet. He looks at Paul and says, what must I do to be saved? Obviously, they're staying there. And whatever Paul had to do to keep everybody there, which the Bible doesn't say, but I don't imagine it was without some very, very stern warning, that this man was impressed by what he witnessed. And the Holy Spirit was working in his heart. What did Paul say in response to the question? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Well, that sounds like, oh, just make a profession of faith and you'll be cool. That's not what it means. To believe on someone is to rest everything on that. That's the foundation. We might say, stand on the rock. He said, stand on the rock of Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. There are too many people who will give lip service to that concept, but they're not really standing on the rock. They're standing on Jesus and a lot of other things that they like about our culture, and that's why they're not willing to really go the extra mile to take an established, principled view that says, no, we'll obey God, not man. And that Philippian jailer was brought to uh, the point of that question by the crisis that he was facing. And it's an interesting question that he asked Paul and, and Silas, I think it was, he was in prison with. And that some people speculate that maybe he wasn't so much asking a theological or soteriological question. He was genuinely wanting to know, okay, if I'm not going to kill myself, what it, how can I be, quote, safe or uh, avoid what's going to happen to me since you guys can escape? So he was being motivated by a physical crisis to ask a question that Paul, if we could for a moment look at it from that standpoint, Paul was answering that question in a way that said, you may be thinking about your physical safety right now, but there's a much bigger issue, and I'm going to tell you what you can do to guarantee absolute safety in the, in the most profound sense. So um, you think Paul was, asking, was getting to the question behind the question? That's exactly uh, what I think. <laughs> Who knew we weren't original with the name of our podcast? There we go. Well, uh, and I think, too, it's interesting maybe to put this in a larger context. Cause I can imagine that someone might, with some justification, say, well, wait a minute. You've talked about abortion. Going back to a subject we've covered in a previous podcast, you know, what about the civil rights era, you know, where there was genuine concern about racial discrimination and people being treated unjustly and unfairly simply because they were of a different race? And we certainly saw massive protests in different places relating to those things. And people can say, well, that certainly affected change. It changed laws here and changed this and that. And again, we can point to the fact that it did on a mass scale change Jim Crow laws here in the South where I live and things of that nature. But that does not discount the point that we are making and that the Bible teaches. You can legally make it against the law to, quote unquote, discriminate against someone based on their race or their religion or whatever. But you haven't changed the heart of the person who might be prone to do that. And so you really haven't ultimately solved the problem. I well recall growing up here in the South and being in public schools in the 60s during the desegregation era that many of us were quite astounded to learn that in the enclaves of the Irish communities of Boston, South Boston, for example, 
there was absolutely total rigid opposition to any integration or racial integration in, in those communities. We were astounded by this because you know, we were sort of made to understand that we were the focus of all that was bad in that regard. But the point I'm making with this is that this, this particular issue is a human heart problem. It is a problem by any mind or life who's not been transformed by God's word and therefore following his way of life. If you're following something else, you're going to have these kind of problems. And it's just, it, all of these things we can rattle off, racism, uh, abortion, w- whatever else we can talk about. The genuine change that can be affected, the lasting change, the kind of change that God wants us to find is starting first with the individual human heart in life. And acknowledging the fact that we're very much a product of our time, and so we're very much attuned to, without always knowing it, the propaganda. So there are some would say, see, the protests produced a change. Well, some people would tell you today that there hasn't been that much of a change. Some people would say there's been a tremendous change. So oftentimes it has to do with who's interpreting stuff. The takeaway from all this is that if you're looking at affecting change so that you can be happier, that's a whole different motivation than affecting change because you're pursuing the kingdom of God and his righteousness or justice. I mentioned earlier in the podcast that at the time we're recording this, uh, something that's been on the national news is the case of the Starbucks store in Philadelphia. And uh, if I'm just going to, for the sake of discussion uh, and following up what we've just been talking about, assume that what we have been presented in the media is more or less accurate, which is you had two individual African-American men who were casually dressed coming into this place of business and basically sitting there chatting and then using the bathrooms and uh, or wanting to use the bathrooms. And they were being told, well, unless you buy something, you can't use the restroom, and furthermore, you need to leave if you're not going to buy anything. Well, apparently, there were other people who were sitting around not buying anything to all appearances, and this looked like an example of a store manager seeing two African-American men who basically were just sitting around, and the police were called, and they were taken out uh, and arrested. They were eventually released. But here again, this is an example. This is the year 2018. This is taking place and a company that is universally recognized as being one of the most left-leaning, progressive, liberal companies on the planet, and yet you still have, quote-unquote, racism rearing its ugly head. And so all the protests, all of this stuff really hasn't changed that much. We're still playing to this audience of numbers. What's the protest going to be at Starbucks? Is that the answer to it? Is it the way we're going to affect change? And this points to a larger problem in our society. We've described it and talked about it, but it it affects everything, and that is this idea of uh, mass media, mass propaganda, people being manipulated by images, sound bites, realities that are being created for people that they believe, they think they know the truth about something that's happened or not happened, when in fact it's people with certain types of agendas who are cynically manipulating data and information to create uh, an awareness of something that really may not even be there. And this, again, undercuts the integrity of our relations, of the things that we try to do. And this is why a biblical foundation is so absolutely necessary. Again, it goes back to self-government. If you 
are not ab- abiding by God's law and his word as summarized in the Ten Commandments, then everything else you're going to do is going to be false or open to being falsified and emptied of its integrity. And sooner or later, this leads to collapse. Many times it's later. This is why we've talked about the progressive development and the long-range planning. The problem with humanism is, because it is a revolutionary type of faith, it always ends up collapsing and caving in on itself. There's never been any example of any culture or society that's been influenced in this way that hasn't led to its own chaos and, and destruction. By contrast, program that God has given us in Scripture of individual transformation, of regeneration and reformation, is the only solid foundation in which any uh, genuine change can be effected. And if you read the Scripture as though God meant to tell us what was going to happen, which of course is why he gave it to us, we know that the victory was accomplished at Calvary. That means that we're going to see a progressive victory of the Bible's world and life view permeating everywhere. The problem is, is when you listen to the doomsayers and the naysayers who tell you you'll never win, you'll never win, you'll never win. Well, I look forward to seeing how the humanists are going to destroy themselves, being ready so that when that collapse happens, a Christian civilization can once again emerge where we do things by the book, by God's book. I listen to a lot of podcasts and audio recordings of people who have, I guess what I'll call alternate theories about history and, and things of that nature. In other words, sort of off the grid, not politically correct, acceptable, allowable opinion. And one of the popular ideas that, that you find in some of these discussions is the idea that there has been taking place among the elites and the oligarchs of our world, uh, the formation of a breakaway civilization, you know, that there's been this plan to basically gut every major industrial country. And once the technology is there, go off world to some planet and, or something like you see in one of these sci-fi movies, I forgot the name of it, where there was this sort of gigantic orbiting uh, circular spaceship thing that was just off in the atmosphere off planet earth and all the elite people on the, on the planet had moved up to this thing and the, and the earth was just in to- total chaos well the whole purpose of that is to create this idea that something like that, that could take place when in, fa- in fact the original breakaway civilization were the early christians they did that very thing but for the motivation of establishing a godly social order crumbling remnants of the roman empire revealed a Christian society that had developed in parallel to it and quite apart from it. And that was what was left to take the place of the humanism of the, of the days of the Caesars. But you're not going to find that in a lot of secular history books because no. we'll call those the Dark Ages. See, as soon as we call those the Dark Ages, then nothing good happened. It's just a rewriting of history and not proclaiming the progressive success and victory of God's word being applied to individuals and societies. And I want to go back to an earlier part of our discussion when we were talking about, as, as we have several times, that the idea of, the modern idea of protest uh, is very much linked to the idea of media coverage. There's an event that took place in our country in the early 20th century, and I'll have to beg our listeners' forgiveness if I don't have some of the exact facts and figures, but I'm pretty positive about the, the basis of it, the gist of it. After World War I, 
there was a massive, massive protest on the part of veterans who um, were not getting the benefits they were promised or something along that line. And they actually marched on Washington and set up uh, what we might today think of as a tent city. And I don't remember if it was President Hoover or Coolidge, one or the other, basically called in the, uh, the army and busted up the entire thing. And that was really on the edge of the beginning of, of mass media coverage. But there was no hesitation on the part of the government to basically take this, these massive numbers of, of, I mean, these were men who had seen horrible battles in World War I, uh, and they were in, in the hundreds of them that were basically setting up this camp in, uh, in Washington, D.C. until their, their concerns were addressed, and they were treated quite brutally. But now, uh, in more recent times, because of the mass media coverage, you've seen a lot less of that. Or if something like that is going to happen, it'll be after midnight when just about everybody, at least on the East Coast, has gone to bed. Well, that wasn't too different when it was a very public thing when Jesus came in on what we call Palm Sunday. But when they arrested him, they did it at night. So things haven't really changed that much. But they've changed in it. I mean, the enemies of God haven't really changed that much. You know, all that hate God love death. That's what the Bible says. And I really want to stress that the way to effect change is to take every word of Scripture as though God was talking to you and that you're supposed to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and on his law because the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is all about Jesus. It's not like, well, we're only going to focus on Jesus if we look at the the Gospels and those red letters, things he said. The whole thing is about Jesus. That's why we have to recognize that if he's for us, then there's no one who can truly be against us. And if we can think of our own disciple-making efforts in a comparative sense with a husband and wife starting uh, their family, you've got two individuals who, let's say, have four children and then their children get married and have more children. So radiating out from these two individuals who start their family, eventually you have 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, hundreds of offspring right on down the line. And this, again, becomes for us a model by which we can affect the kind of change that we're talking about. If you have, say, a person who has a particular interest on the subject of human abortion, well, then you find someone who is facing that crisis and you speak to them about the the biblical perspective on that and by God's grace a mind will be changed a life will be saved but then they can go on and multiply that same effort among many other different people so you have genuine change being affected gradually and over time but one step at a time rather than this sort of a, a mass imposition where it doesn't really change the individual heart or mind. It just puts a veneer over the problem. It doesn't really solve it. When it comes right down to it, biblical Christianity isn't just changing somebody's behavior. It's changing the person in its totality. The fact that the behavior itself really absolutely won't be changed in any meaningful sense unless there's the change in the motivation that would lead to that behavior or prevent it. I'd like to make a recommendation. There's a book that has a number of authors, but it's available at calcedon.edu called The Great Christian Revolution. And it really goes into the effect of Christianity in terms of the formation of what we would call Western civilization. Um, it's a good read, and it's, a, it's an enjoyable read. 
I would like to recommend uh, two different resources. There, there, there are several, actually, we, we could recommend, but I'm just going to mention two. They're very different in their scope, but I think they do speak to this issue in, in different ways about where, where is the foundation, where do we start for change. And I mentioned the early Christians and the impact that they had on Roman society. And there's a little book that is published by the Chalcedon Foundation. It is called The Atheism of the Early Church by R.J. Rushdoony. We will be having a book club discussion about this book coming up in a few months. But in this book, Dr. Rushdoony talks about the, the place of the early church in that Roman culture. It's a book of really less than 100 pages, but it outlines some very significant things along the lines of what we've been talking about today. The other book that I would recommend is, is a book by Gary North that is available as a free download from Dr. North's free book site, which is called The Five Pillars of Biblical Success. It is a great little resource in terms of how a person can uh, achieve advancing a particular thing in their individual lives based on solid biblical principles. And although it doesn't speak to the issue of mass protest, nevertheless, it does talk about how uh, changing individually or having a program for individual, in this case, success in any area of life, how that can be achieved and realized. I hope people check out those resources. And if there's more that you would like to know on this topic or comment on this topic, get in touch with us through our email address, outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. And if you have suggestions for questions that you ask that you would like some help in getting answered, uh, send those along as well, and they can be the subject of a future broadcast. So we thank everyone for listening today, and uh, we will look forward to being with you again on our next broadcast. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, visit www.kingdomdrivenfamily.com.